to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, June 19th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We're very happy to have joining us today, Ava Jadula. Ava is an associate professor of practice at the University of Notre Dame, where she's also a fellow of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, the Liu Institute for Asia and Asian Studies, and the Institute for Global Development. She received her PhD from the University of Illinois, Chicago in 2014. Among other topics, Ava has done research on immigration, motivated in part by her own experience growing up in the Czech Republic before coming to the United States at the age of 18. We'll talk more about her research on immigration in a few minutes. Ava, Glenn, how are you today? Great. Thanks, Tony. Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, we're very happy to have you. Thank you for making time to be on the podcast. We've been starting these podcasts by asking our guests about how the sudden transition to teaching online in the spring semester went and whether they learned things from this experience they might use if they teach online courses this fall. I know you've just completed a randomized controlled trial on the effect of small commitments on student performance, which you're scheduled to present at the American Economic Association meetings in January, which could be either in Chicago, which we hope, or maybe they'll have to move it online. Did you find that work helpful during the spring in your online courses? I think going forward, we absolutely will. We actually had a chance to present it to some of our colleagues at the Teach Econ conference that was sort of a spin off the sea tree that was supposed to be held in Chicago and got um, canceled. So some of our colleagues from uh, University College London took it on themselves to organize an online version for a few of the sessions. So we got some great feedback. But it's the, the field of behavioral economics has become so popular and it is so important because as much as we need to teach the standard economic models and how agents interact, we're always relying on them being rational and we are not always rational in our everyday lives. So this um, kind of infusion of the behavioral into this educational experiment was really brought to me by my co-author, Amanda Felke from Lake Forest College, which was my undergraduate alma mater. And we put this together running a fairly large scale experiment. We had over 700 students at the University of Notre Dame, about 350 at uh, Florida Atlantic and 150 at University of Illinois. And it was also across a variety of delivery methods. So some of the classes were face-to-face, some of them were hybrid classes, some of them were fully online classes. And our experiment was based on trying to motivate students to do the work and what actually will make an impact. There's been a lot of research, largely by Phil Oriopoulos out of Toronto, showing that nudges to students and sending text messages and reminders don't really have a big impact. So we knew that by itself won't work, but we wanted to explore the behavioral side of it. So we started with the nudges as our baseline delivery of kind of small actions for the day, asking students to think about the supply and demand model in their own daily lives. If we were looking at consumer decisions, asking them to think what is their own budget constraint, whether it is time, whether it is money and how they can allocate it. So really trying to have them think about the applications and they would get these small text messages several times a week, three, four times a week, just to kind of get them connected with the material outside of the classroom. And we ran a randomized control 
trial. So we randomly chose half of the students to receive these text messages as a plain text, just with the task, this is what you should be thinking about today. And our treatment group was delivered these text messages via a special platform of ProHabits that actually has a additional button with that text message. It's when you get into the platform that asks you to commit to performing that task that day. So the delivery content is exactly the same. The thinking process is the same, but the treatment group gets this additional step of asking them, are you willing to commit to completing this task today? And they get a small text reminder at like 4 p.m. in the afternoon, just checking in, hey, have you actually done this? But the students know it is not collected. It doesn't matter whether they do it or not. It is just for them. We didn't grade it. Every week on Sunday night, we would send a blast email with suggested solutions and thoughts about that week's actions. So everybody got the solutions. But interestingly, this self-commitment to yourself, even though you know nobody's policing it, did um, seem to make an impact on the exam scores of the students, and especially in the online classes and the hybrid classes. In face-to-face, -face, it wasn't um, really significant, but in these alternative delivery methods, with especially in this environment, we may all need to switch to, seem to have a much larger impact on the exam scores. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, as you, as you say, we may be in this world of alternative methods for a while. Are there any other ideas you've thought about in the uh, online world or Zoom world of class? I mean, could it be, um, for example, speakers that Zoom into class or breakouts of students? Are there any other ways that you're changing the teaching? I think that's a, a big thing because the feedback we got from students for the second half of the spring semester was really that it's exhausting to just be looking at the Zoom recordings over and over and it's hard to focus and hard to engage. So we took a, a sharp turn. So our kind of shutdown happened right in, in the middle of spring break. So students were actually off campus and they couldn't go back. I was um, stuck in Mexico with my immigration um, class. We were visiting migrant shelters and doing some of the work for the class there. And in the middle of it, we got the, the news. So uh, my students were lucky that they had to return to campus and at least get their stuff. But um, the feedback was really that when I recorded lectures, it was hard to engage. What I did for my principal's courses, I was fortunate enough to have had recorded my in-person lectures the previous semester. I do that for students who have to miss class if they're athletes or have interviews for internships or whatnot. If they have an excused absence, I make the videos available to them. And all of my principal students really appreciated seeing a recording of a live class with student interactions and questions that are being asked and more of this feeling that they're just sitting in on a class, they just can't ask the questions live. So I really am determined to continue using those in, in a case of having to switch to online really quickly rather than just recording myself speaking necessarily. But with my immigration class, bringing speakers, I've done that quite a bit to connect the material. We were fortunate enough to have speaker, former speaker Ryan with us in my immigration class. He was willing to, to share his experience on immigration policy and involvement. So I think that to the students breaks up the monotonicity of just listening to recorded lectures and is really useful in this environment. Well, that's super impressive to have gotten uh, Paul Ryan, a very effective uh, political leader and actually a pretty smart guy. He 
is an econ groupie, actually. So I think that's... He was an econ undergrad, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, what do you think the fall will look like at Notre Dame? Are you thinking about all Zoom online, a hybrid? I mean, how, how will you be teaching? So at this point, um, our, I'm teaching fairly large lectures in, in, in our setting. We were sort of on hold for a while trying to figure out the logistics, but the goal is to be on in person as much as we can. So they're trying to find alternative spaces, thinking about using some of our performance venues to hold large classes so that students could have social distancing in place different methods for getting students in and out of classes. They've extended the time in between classes to give them enough time to go back and forth uh, with these new procedures. Uh, But the the commitment is really to the in-person teaching, which I support. They asked us for our preference, which was very nice. And I said that as much as maybe for me personally, it would be nice to teach online. I feel for students, it's a better experience to get the in-person instruction and interaction. That's what I worry about the most, losing the connections and um, building the relationships with the students during their undergraduate experience. But Notre Dame has committed to try to be in person on campus and we have shifted our semester forward. So we're starting two weeks early and we're skipping all scheduled breaks so that final exams will happen prior to Thanksgiving while still on campus. Okay. Yeah, I mean, who needs a break when you're taking economics? I mean, gosh, it's not vacation anyway. Columbia is going through some of the same things. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting for all of us. We don't yet know what our teaching is going to be in the fall. We know the course, but, you know, how to, how to do it. What about your immigration class? Will that be all face-to-face? Or? So that will not be until the spring. So that is spring. yet to, to be seen. But that's a much smaller class, so easier to accommodate. It's just the large lectures that are hard to find a space that can hold all of the students while giving them enough space to socially distance themselves. So we also have to be ready for any changes at any time, right? Whether I might become symptomatic and I can't come teach or students can be symptomatic and have to be quarantined. So the fact that I am set up and ready to record um, is going to be really useful so that at any moment's notice, I can switch to a fully online delivery or just for some specific students, really being flexible is, is the plan at this point. I was just going to ask, how do you think that online exams and grading went? Because I know my colleagues at Lehigh, that's been a big issue. And we're actually planning on stopping instruction before Thanksgiving, but giving the finals online. So even if... I think that, yeah, a lot of schools... um, So I have a a senior heading into college and this fall, he's going to Purdue University and they're having the same plan, having stop in person at Thanksgiving and then finishing online. And my first concern as a professor was like, wow, how do you, you know, integrity of the exams is always our fear, even if you have the ability to use a lockdown browser or whatnot. But in addition to that, I think it's an incredible stress on the students because they're worried about their own internet connection. And what if I get disconnected if I'm taking an exam. So it's not just that we worry about the integrity on our side, but also for the students, I think the stress is pretty big when it is a high weight exam. So I would hope that we as a group of professors take that into account going into the semester, knowing you have to switch and try to shift the weight of the final exam to the assessments that take place while still on campus, right? Mm -hmm. Prior to students leaving so that it reduces that uncertainty a little bit. 
That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if, if you think about events, which are obviously huge for students now, are you getting questions or do you expect to get questions from students on particular current events as they relate to principles? And then I want to come to immigration, but let me start just in general. Um, I think so. This is, I mean, uh, especially for teaching introductory microeconomics, this is an amazing time to witness sudden changes and shocks to markets, whether it's supply side interruptions, demand changes for what people now, right, with Amazon or any type of delivery service, because nobody wants to leave home, pickups in, in grocery stores. We've actually been with some of my colleagues working on preparing just to kind of supplement and again, introduce a variety of assessments. We're spending our summer designing these small video quizzes based on current events and, and news that we will assign a reading or a news video to students and then um, within this kind of quiz video, ask them the question, give them a chance to respond, then we will comment on it. Again, to use whether it's with our in-person classes as a supplemental assessment and, and practice along the course, and especially if we go fully online, just to give students some variety. But I think this is a perfect time to connect the material from the book to, to what's happening in the current world. I agree. That's always been the best part about teaching Ecom 101. The news is always available, but right now, whether you're teaching micro or macro, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. But your own work centers a lot on immigration, and you talked about the immigration class. How does the pandemic affect what you're going to talk about? So, for example, everything from just restrictions. It's very hard for a non-American to enter the United States at the moment, whether you're a student or somebody else. And of course, political consequences of the pandemic for immigration. How will that affect the way you teach the class? Uh, that class itself all has been also just benefiting from the, or maybe not benefiting, the discussion has been benefiting, but I think not maybe the, the, the welfare of the society from the restrictions that have been taking place. But the news are always there as well. And I think the restriction, especially with my research, I really focus on a kind of legal status of, of the foreign born in the US and acquisition of citizenship. My primary focus is on the, the marriage channel in that sense, because um, like you said, it's very hard even without COVID-19 to, to be able to legally enter the United States for uh, the purposes of living here and working here, maybe not as a tourist, but for permanent stay. And all of the visa and, and legal status adjustment categories have quotas um, that are tied to the number of people from your country of origin and also just as, as a total for the United States as a limit, with the exception of marrying a U.S. citizen. So the restrictions tend to be very problematic for large countries because no country can receive more than 7% of the total visas um, that are issued that year. So for countries like China, India, or Mexico, this is very, very problematic because they have just large numbers of people who want to come. So the wait times can be years to decades for some visa categories. I mean, they're in the system, but they might have to wait 20 years to get a hearing. And this backlog of applications with the current restric restrictions on allowing people in, allowing people to even submit these applications. And the offices, in fact, being closed, I think they just um, last week slowly started reopening some of these processing centers. 
is going to create this backlog even even bigger. So I look at this marriage channel as sort of a relief valve for this this backlog of applications because that is the one category that does not have the quota limit. And aside from the kind of anecdotal and movie takes on marrying someone just to to get a green card, um, it's not even to that extent. I just look at anyone who's in their early years looking for a partner, if you're looking for a marriage partner or dating partner, and you yourself are an immigrant who does not have a path to permanent residency in the United States, of course, you care whether you're compatible, maybe on the political front, if you have same opinions on on big issues, and whether you want to have kids or not. But the factor of is that potential spouse someone who could give me a path to citizenship is also going to play a role, right? Because if, if, if that's a future path for you that makes life a lot easier, you're definitely going to take that into account. And in my study, I look at sort of in the, in the basic micro principles, there is a marginal benefit and marginal cost of continuing to search. But the longer you search, the possibility of the additional marginal benefit of that search, finding a better and better partner is going to be smaller and smaller. You're just narrowing your search more and more, but the marginal cost of searching is actually going to increase. You have to spend more money on dates, having your hair done. Um, you're <laughs> giving up the, the gains from marriage that, right, economies of scale that you can utilize and joint um, living arrangements, lower costs. So there is some optimal level of how much you should search at that level of compatibility. So I argue that if, if one of your criteria is that you're looking for a partner and you would really like them to have a path to citizenship, that increases your marginal cost of searching along all the other dimensions of compatibility. So you might be more willing to compromise along the maybe long-term goals or the political affiliations or religious preferences, uh, because this is going to just play a larger role in your decision. So it's not that people are making a bad decision. It is an optimal decision at that point. But once you get access to permanent residency, and that is not an important part of that relationship, maybe those other imperfections uh, become a little more prominent and lead to marital disability. So our entire immigration policy is very much family-centered. And I actually introduced this idea that this family-centered policy might be behind increased marital instability because people are forced to make suboptimal choices in the marriage market because of this channel being available. That's really interesting. You know, I, as an economist, hearing marginal benefit, marginal cost, I, my tears come to my eyes, but how do <laughs> students react to marginal benefit, marginal cost in a subject like dating? Uh, with giggles, usually at first, um, yeah. and, and quite a shock and awe if they've just never thought about it, right? But it's, it's very, I think these are the things that we need to highlight in in our teachings. It's the things that they can relate to and um, they experience. They know what it's like to go on a date and whether they want to keep on swiping left or right on dating apps and, and keep on searching and keep trying to find a better match. So I think these things are really fun for the students to to engage with. I also teach a a class on economic demography of China, and we look at marriage markets and how that gets distorted with the one-child policy and mismatch of sex uh, ratios. Um, And that's all done through the marginal cost, marginal benefit, and supply and demand analysis. And I think it's fascinating to the students to look at things that they don't think of as economics through this lens that we use. 
Now, have you had a student come and say, well, after taking your class, I broke up with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I realized uh, marginal cost is greater than marginal benefit. <laughs> uh, not yet. And I hope not to, not to yeah. be behind let, that. Let me ask case. you one final question. I'll turn it over back to Tony, which is um, in your immigration class, you know, that's, that can be a difficult subject for teaching, in my experience, because students can come with preconceived notions mm -hmm. and, and ideas, some of which are analytically based, others not. How do you handle that discussion? Um, so I think I'm very upfront with them on day one, um, letting them know that I'm an immigrant myself. I came, you know, to this country when I was 18 years old. I actually came as a, as a live-in nanny um, and then decided to stay and went to school and went through a lot of the things and these loopholes and whatnot that, that we teach in class. And I think they truly appreciate it. I also think there's a little bit of a self-selection into that class that it's students who are really interested in studying the concept and have more of a positive view on immigration. But I always try to not force my opinions on the students, but expose them to both sides of the story and help them make a decision, right? I think in economics, it's a, I tell my students that I fell in love with economics and dropped my international relations double major very quickly because I was really disturbed by the fact that there were no hard answers in political science, that it was very subjective and I, I had a hard time dealing with it. But with economics, I was happy because we can confidently solve the problems for the most efficient solution and have a starting point. But it doesn't mean that the most efficient solution is the answer we get to decide how much of this efficiency we're willing to trade off for an increase in equality and have people who are less fortunate have access to things that we do. But that's a decision that's personal and that's subjective. But at least in economics, we have a starting point of this is the most efficient and now we get to decide how much we trade off. And that's something I was really comfortable with. So to me, these are kind of my mantras. I don't want to tell the students what to think. I want them to make their own decisions. And I really try to give them both sides of the view and being very cognizant of the fact that I am very much pro-immigration because that is my history and my path. That's great. Thanks. Ava, one of the things that has concerned a lot of instructors is how they'll adapt to on-campus teaching. Um, are there certain things they will no longer do, like maybe they won't give out handouts or even administering exams, sort of the dynamics of the classroom? Maybe if you had had small groups come together and, and think about a, a question then presented to the class, is that still going to be possible? Yeah, I think there's going to have to be some compromises in that sense. I like to do a lot of small group work in class. I will pose questions or ask them to solve problems and think about them. And I want them to talk through other people and have to explain it to a classmate because I feel that's the best way to learn. If you have to explain it to somebody else, I think when we all started teaching, that was our experience. So I like small groups. I also do a lot of games and experiments in the classroom to demonstrate concepts. So I'll have a few volunteers come up and they know it generally will get rewarded with some candy or um, so they're willing to do that to demonstrate concepts, whether it's um, tragedy of the commons or whatnot. So I think classroom will have to be adapted. And unfortunately, I see it as a little bit of a negative, but um, to keep us safe, it's a good trade-off. But even outside of the classroom, I... Uh, 
am a product of liberal arts school and I really enjoyed getting to know my professors and building relationships. They're responsible for me going to graduate school. I didn't even know that was an option at that point. So for my students, I hold Starbucks hours. I have small group meetings with five, six students at a time. And we go get coffee and chat for an hour, not even about class, but about their goals. I don't think we can do that at this point. Um, it's a little hard with face masks on. <laughs> but some of the adaptations, I guess we can, we can figure out. We've done well shifting things online on Zoom with conferences and meetings. Maybe these small groups meetings can happen virtually as well to give students a chance. If they want to get to know you in a safe environment to have a small setting um, and maybe a discussion topic that they can join in instead of just my coffee at Starbucks. Great. Yeah, we all have a lot of adapting to do, no doubt about it. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much, Ava, for joining us today. It was very interesting and worthwhile. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me and good luck to everybody this fall. Thank you. Just a reminder to listeners that this podcast is now available on iTunes. So if you'd like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. And if you're so moved, you can leave us a review. Please also keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com, where we periodically post new content, mostly related to the economics of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can subscribe to the blog and you'll receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.